we're gonna we're changing the order of our typical service around just a little bit. Um, we're gonna sing again in a little bit, but for now, open if you would to Acts chapter two. Let me begin by just asking you a fairly simple question. How do you respond to life-altering news? Life-altering news. How do you respond to that? Well, in Acts chapter 2, let me read beginning in verse 22. And think of that question as we read through this. So Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Peter is speaking. We pick it up kind of in the middle of a sermon. And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's just pray one more time. God, I pray that you would give us what we need this morning from your word. We are a needy people and we are dependent upon you. And so I ask that you would meet our needs today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as the Apostle Peter concludes his sermon here in verse 36 that I just read, he delivers really in that verse what seems to be a a fatal blow to the devout Jews that he has been preaching to. When he said, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter has preached this sermon to his listeners that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah, that he was the Christ that the Jews have been waiting for, that he was the Savior who he says is now glorified at God's right hand. And he lays the blame for Jesus' death 
squarely at the feet of these men who are standing before him. This Jesus, whom you crucified. They had done this not that long earlier. Maybe less than two months. They had crucified him. They had demanded his crucifixion. And this is devastating news for these men. These Jewish men are devout. They know the scriptures. They know the the Bible, the Old Testament, inside and out. They knew the prophecies. They knew that they were waiting for a deliverer. They knew that God had promised that one of David's descendants would always sit on the throne. They knew that God had promised a, a deliverer like Moses who would redeem them. And when Peter shows them from their own scriptures that Jesus fulfills all of their prophecies, they were overwhelmed with conviction. Verse 37 tells us that they were cut to the heart. And then they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, in response to his sermon, they're cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? The Holy Spirit had grabbed a hold of them, had showed them their sin, showed them their guilt, showed them Jesus' perfect righteousness, and showed them that if they, if they stayed in their unbelief, they stood condemned. But God is not in the business of simply making us feel bad. The sermon doesn't end there. There is a pause. They are cut to the heart. They ask, what shall we do? But God is not the the moral monster so many people today claim that he is. See, if if God was um, this monster, if God was this unloving deity, would he have sent his only begotten son to pay the penalty, to live the life that, that God requires, to live a life of perfect obedience? Yes, God... God requires holiness. Yes, God requires that perfect obedience, perfect righteousness. And and yes, there is no way for us, any of us, to live that kind of life, to live up to that standard. But that's why he sent his perfectly righteous and perfectly holy son to stand in our place. And so these men stood there already condemned having been literally the ones who were yelling, crucify him, just a few months earlier. They stood condemned and they were now asking, brothers, what do we do? They were convicted by the Holy Spirit. And and Peter explains to them that the only proper response to that conviction, the only proper response is repentance. Turn and run from your sin and run to Jesus. When Peter tells them to repent, he's not telling them to get their lives straightened out and get to church. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying act like a better person. He's telling them to stop depending on themselves and instead put your trust, put your belief, your faith only in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. And so in In Peter's challenge to these devout Jews standing there before him, repentance is is kind of the the prerequisite for the forgiveness of sins. No repentance, he says, no forgiveness. See, 
when the Holy Spirit is working in a person's life, He will bring them to conviction, which will lead to repentance, bringing the forgiveness of sins. And and true, genuine repentance will lead to obedience, a, a changed life. It will lead to transformation, a changed heart, really. Look at how Peter paints this picture for us here, beginning in in verse, let me start in 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter and the rest of the apostles, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Conviction led them to repentance. And repentance led to, really it leads to three simultaneous events in the life of a, of a Christian, of a person. The first is this. It leads to new life. This is symbolized in, in baptism. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. But it leads to a new life. It brings the forgiveness of sin. This is, this is the guilty condemnation being removed. And then it brings the gift of the Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory, as Ephesians will tell us. So Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism is one of the most important events in the life of a believer. I firmly believe this. Unfortunately, it's also become fairly divisive in uh, one of the divisive topics within many churches today. And for centuries, not, this isn't just a, a modern argument, but for centuries, Christians have fought over the mode of baptism, the timing of baptism, the meaning of baptism, the effects of baptism. The list goes on and on and on. So this morning, I want to just look at this command. And we're going to answer five basic questions that should help us to understand what the scriptures teach us right here, okay? Five basic questions. You're also going to witness this morning a couple of baptisms as Alex and Sean step forward to be baptized. So there are five questions. Here they are. Who, what, when, where, and why? Simple. Who, what, when, where, and why? So first, who should be baptized? Who is to be baptized? Look at 38 again. Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, Every one of you. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. So does this mean that every single person should be baptized? That every single person ought to be baptized? Here's the answer. Yes. And I'll explain why. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's the same desire that Peter is expressing here. 
to these people who are listening to him preach. Every one of you, be saved. Come to a knowledge of the truth. and Be baptized. He essentially says to them, all of you, y'all, repent. Actually, he would say, all y'all, repent. Now, we don't get this in English, but the word repent right there in verse 38, it's actually plural. So we would say, all y'all, all of you, repent. But then the words for be baptized, that word is actually singular. So we could say, so you be baptized. All of you repent and, and you be baptized. So, so here is what Peter is saying. All of you repent and each of you who does repent, be baptized. So who should be baptized? Every person who has genuinely repented. All believers and only believers. Every one of you. Every one of us. So here's the big question. This is one that gets us sometimes. Should the children of believers be baptized? Let me answer it by saying this. Only if they have expressed a reasonable evidence of genuine faith and repentance. Every person who is baptized in Scripture is, is baptized after an expression of faith. And they're all adults, actually. But what if I have not been baptized? Well, if you, if you believe, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation and you have not been baptized, then you need to wrestle with this because it really is a matter of obedience. It doesn't save you. We're going to get into that here in a minute. But it is a matter of obedience, a matter of obeying the Lord's commands. So here's the point. That first question is who? Who should be baptized? Notice Peter is calling only the repentant to be baptized. He says, repent and be baptized. All who have repented and put their faith in Jesus then ought to be baptized. So next question, what? What? Notice the little word there that he says right in verse 38. He says, for the forgiveness of your sins. And that it's kind of a, an unfortunate translation. It's caused a few problems. See, it seems to read that, that baptism is a prerequisite for the forgiveness of your sins. So we could read that to say, uh, if I am baptized, then I will receive the forgiveness of sins. But, but that's not true, and that's not what it is saying. In fact, it's just the opposite. And it actually means on the basis of. So we should read the verse like this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins. For Christ has forgiven your sins. So therefore, step forward. Be baptized. See, repentance leads to baptism because when you repented, God forgave your sins. We don't like that word repentance usually. Our society doesn't like it. It sounds very um, picket sign ish but it just means turn and run to christ abandon your sin and run to our savior and god is eager to forgive let me put it this way and, and see if you understand in, um, in certain church circles in order to invite someone to christ to ask them to trust in christ they feel as though the the pastor ought to issue an altar call so at the end of the service, if you feel moved, you should get up and come forward. And that's fine. I have nothing against an altar call per se, but if true conversion has taken place, if you really have repented and believed in your sins, uh, then that happened before 
your butt left the chair. Because it happens in your heart. Because it happens between you and God. Our actions cannot save us. Christ saves us by granting us repentance and forgiveness. So what is baptism? Well, it means, literally, it means to immerse or to dip, to put in the water and take back out again. And it brings to mind a, a cleansing or a, a washing. See, in the, in the Jewish way of thinking, in the Old Testament way of thinking, there's this imagery of, of certain things or certain people being clean or unclean. And that idea is very common. A, and a washing or an immersing in water paints a, it paints a, a picture of a, of a ceremonial cleansing that makes a person clean so that he can then draw near to God. That's where some churches get the idea of holy water from. It's a, it's a spiritual cleansing. I could tell you that's not holy water. It's from the garden hose outside, and it's got maybe a little too much chlorine in it. It's just water, because that's not the point. It's always internal and in the heart. This is the imagery of holiness. See, spiritually unclean people are not able to approach God. Those of us who have been stained by sin are not able to draw near to a holy God. And so this act of baptism, of going down into the water and coming back up out of the water, is a ceremonial washing. It's, it's just a, signet, uh, a sign it's just an outward expression. It signifies, and that's all it does. It, it represents the cleansing of all from all unrighteousness that repentance produces. This whole concept is what John summarizes in 1 John 1, 9 when he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what it signifies. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what Peter means when he says, repent and be baptized. Confess your sins and he is faithful and he is just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you, to wash you, to baptize you from all unrighteousness. But then there's more. Because the, the physical water baptism is just an image. It's just something for us to see. It's an image of God's cleansing us from all unrighteousness. That means that not only have we been forgiven of our sin, but we also continue to run from our sin. Listen to how Paul puts it. I read part of this uh, earlier, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. He says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that God's grace may abound to us? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we still participate in it? He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, immersed into Christ Jesus, were baptized, we were immersed into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is saying that in baptism, we are identifying with Christ. We are being immersed into Christ. We are dead to sin and alive to God.
baptism, baptism represents not only our, our cleansing, but it also represents a new birth, a new life. We have newness, raised to walk in newness of life, Paul says there in Romans. It represents our resurrection, dead to sin and buried down in, in the grave and raised to walk in a resurrected new life. So those questions, who? All those who have genuinely repented and put their trust and faith in Christ. What is it? It is an image. It's just simply an outward expression of an inward faith. It is an image of God's cleansing us from all unrighteousness. It is a public identification of our unity, of our being in union with Christ. It is just simply saying, I am a Christian. And I'm going to do something that is unique to Christians to show you that. I'm going to be baptized into Christ. So the third question then is, when? Well, When it comes to the spiritual baptism, being immersed in Christ, this happens the moment that God saves you. The moment you are cleansed from all unrighteousness, you are baptized into Christ. That's the idea. And as far as physical or water baptism goes, I believe this one's pretty straightforward. We believe that baptism is an event that happens following repentance. Repent and be baptized. Repentance always comes first. Belief in Jesus Christ comes first, and then we display that belief through the outward expression of God's inward uh, heart cleansing. Baptism is important. Jesus commanded it in Matthew chapter 28. You know the verses. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them, immersing them, clothing them with Christ in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And then the promise, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus commanded it. Peter here in Acts chapter 2, he he connects this matter of the, the outward obedience with our inward repentance and faith. Paul used it in Romans chapter 6 to illustrate our identification with Christ and His death and resurrection. And so, yes, we believe that that baptism is a symbolic action, but we don't take it lightly because obedience is never merely symbolic, right? Our obedience to Christ is not symbolic. It shows a genuine heart for Him. And so the fourth question is, where does baptism happen? Well, the river, (laughs) or wherever. Acts 2 doesn't actually tell us where they were baptized. It doesn't tell us at all. It just says that they were. It doesn't even tell us who did the baptizing. Just that they were baptized. Because that's not the point. And there are kind of two ends of the spectrum here. The first, many churches would say that baptism should only take place in the church and that should only be kind of officiated by the ordained clergy of the church. The other viewpoint is that baptism can be done by anybody anywhere. So what 
does the Bible say? Well, verse 41 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So baptism represents entrance into, added that day, added to their number, added to the church that day, about 3,000 souls. I would have to say Peter probably didn't baptize all of them himself. Baptism represents entrance into God's covenant community, into his people. It's a new believer standing up and saying, I too am a Christian. Through Christ's death and resurrection, I have been cleansed of all my unrighteousness. Therefore, the precedent there in verse 41 is that it's to be done with the church present. That the church is there. They're seeing these things. They're witnessing these things. They're welcoming these people into their midst. To say we are all a part of God's body now. And so I believe that we would say um, we are added to the roles, so to speak. To say officially, the church says to the person being baptized, you're a part of us. And we are all in this together. We are his people and he is our God. And then probably the biggest question of all is, why? Why do we baptize? As modern Americans, we have, we have lots of customs and rituals. We don't even realize what we have for customs and rituals, probably. But this one seems just a little bit strange to outsiders. This is not obviously unique to Americans. This is a unique to the church. And this ritual seems a little strange to people outside of the church. So why do we do it? Now, let me answer this question by saying this. We're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because we have called upon the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. Look back at verse 21 there of Acts chapter 2. This is a promise from the Old Testament, from the book of Joel. Peter quotes it here in the middle of his sermon, and he said, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The reason that we're baptized is to say that we have called upon the name of the Lord and he has saved us. That's why we do it. This rite, this ritual, so to speak, it's not magical, but it does represent, it does picture for us what what repentance is asking God to do for us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to take away our sin, to grant forgiveness, to give us new life. For a Christian to agree to baptism is for them to affirm in a a public act of obedience what's already taken place in their heart. Baptism is an expression of conversion. It's an expression of of a new birth, of new life. It's an expression of being made clean. It's an expression showing a heart in submission to Jesus' authority, trusting in Him for salvation. To be baptized is to say to the church, and to the world. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. It's really simply that. This morning we have two men. I'm going to go ahead and say two young men. 
were going to be baptized. They publicly confessed their faith in Jesus Christ. I sent a, an email to the church earlier this week just reminding you of our weekend. And One of the things that I said is that it has cost them. Their public profession of faith is costly to both of these men. Many of you know that feeling, that it is costly. Jesus said, if you would follow me, you must consider the cost. Take it into account, what it will cost you. What it means is that you're dying to self. to be raised in Christ. Baptism is costly. Salvation is costly. And so I would ask that you pray for Alex and Sean, particularly over these next few weeks. Pray specifically for them. Pray for us. Because what they're doing today, something many of us have gone through, we have made a public profession of faith. I have believed that Christ was risen from the dead. I have put my faith and trust in Him, and He has saved me. We've done that, many of us. Pray for them. Welcome them into the church. Love them and care for them. And we do this not because of us, not because of them, we do this to proclaim that Jesus Christ has died, taking away our sin, and that he, it's Easter, rose again. He had victory over sin and death. Pray with me. God, as we think about what it means to make a public profession of faith, to identify with our Savior who rose from the dead. As we think about those words in Romans chapter 6, reminding us that Christ died and that death no longer has dominion over him. But also stating emphatically that he rose we are reminded of the truth of our great salvation. And so as we witness Sean and Alex making a public profession of their faith, we are reminded that many of us have died to our sin and been risen with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. And I pray, Lord, that it would help that this, these events, hearing the water splash, seeing them wet, seeing them, uh, hearing their testimonies, Lord, that it would remind us, that it would strengthen our weak knees, that it would remind us to remain strong, steadfast, and immovable because we trust in a victorious Savior. God, we thank you for all that you have done in Christ. 
We pray these things to the praise of your glory. Amen.